Hello. I'm Jeff. Um, it's so nice of you all to come out and see this because it's so incredibly hot and you get extra points for that. So th I'd like to thank Skylight Books for hosting me. Um, Skylight is my favorite bookstore. I am here all the time and it's a big kick to read here. And I guess I'll talk a little bit about my book before I start reading from it. Um, when I went to graduate school, I knew that I wanted to write about gay stuff, and it seemed really obvious to write about the most gay stuff I could think of, and the gayest writers I could think of were um, Truman Capote and Gertrude Stein. And I was really surprised that people hadn't considered them in a simple gay way as kind of mass market celebrities who were available in the culture to people who didn't read necessarily, who could see, say, a picture of Gertrude Stein on the cover of Time magazine in 1933 looking incredibly butch and how that might inspire, say, a proto-lesbian in Provo, Utah. And this, this woman I always imagined when I was writing this book was in Utah for some reason. And, um, you know, she'd see this Time magazine cover and then she'd be drawn to Stein's work and then Stein's work would reach her in a way that might help her organize or understand her sexuality. So that was really how I came about this, um, this project and, and now I will read from it. So I'm actually going to read from... Hold that down a little bit better for you. Thanks. From this paper instead of the book because it makes me less nervous. So... Gertrude Stein and Truman Capote should not have been famous. They made their names between the Oscar Wilde trials and Stonewall when homosexuality was equivalent to criminality and perversion and when censorship restricted its public mention to shame and disgust. And yet both Capote and Stein, both openly and exclusively gay, built their outsized reputations on works that directly featured homosexuality and a queer aesthetic. Today, I'm going to be discussing Truman Capote in particular and how this very gay man became famous in the late 1940s, despite the fact that he looked gay, he sounded gay, he wrote about gay stuff, and as much as you could be openly gay at a time when gayness was censored in the press, he was out. At a time when most gay authors were closeted, and if they were not, were censored or unsuccessful, Capote somehow profited from this gayness. A large part of how he did this was through portraits. Ah. The first time we see Joel Knox, the hero of Capote's debut novel, Other Voices, Other Rooms, we see him from the perspective of Sam Radcliffe, a truck driver who offers the reader, as truck dri drivers so often do, a real man's view. Joel needs a ride, but Sam hesitates. Radcliffe eyed the boy over the rim of his beer glass, not caring much for the looks of him. He had his notions of what a real boy should look like, and this kid somehow offended them. He was too pretty, too delicate and fair-skinned. Each of his features were shaped with a sensitive accuracy, and a girlish tenderness softened his eyes, which were brown and very large. His brown hair, cut short, was streaked with pure yellow strands. The trucker is offended by Joel's queerness, but he also lingers over each note. Joel is too pretty, too delicate, too fair, too sensitive, too girlish, too tender, too pure. Sam's spoken wish to correct Joel slides into sexual attraction. 
He took a deep swallow of beer, let forth a mighty belch, and grinned, Yes, sir, if I was your pa, I'd take down your pritches and muss you up a bit. Sam's fantasy of assuming a paternal role, of being a daddy who undresses Joel, disrupts his neat surface, and instructs him in masculine crudities, neatly encapsulates the push and pull between fascination and repulsion with homosexuality for the post-World War II public, whose queer desires were screened by disgust and a will for correction, even as they thrust forth. Through this trucker, Capote instructs those readers who do not identify with Knox how to take both his hero and himself. The straight identified may be disturbed and want to fix the queer man, but ultimately their desire fuels his ride. As the butch trucker is pressed by his desire into the effeminate boy's service, so the straight public read and celebrated Capote. Other Voices, Other Rooms was published in January 1948, within a month of Charles Kinsey's Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, The Kinsey Report, and Gore Vidal's novel, The City and the Pillar. All three were New York Times bestsellers. One of Kinsey's most noted findings was that homosexual activity was practiced by ordinary folk and did not, as held by contemporary psychoanalytic theory, indicate effeminacy, immaturity, and perversion. Nor did same-sex desire indicate a homosexual orientation. Though these findings shocked the public, the Kinsey report was shielded to an extent by the respectability of science and by the false belief that, as scientists, Kinsey and his assistants did not participate in the behaviors they studied. Though the city and the pillar also differentiated between effeminacy, immaturity, mental illness, and gay desire, Vidal, as a novelist, lacked Kinsey's shielding. The centrality of homosexuality to the novel made it difficult to review without directly mentioning homosexuality, which broke with the standards and practices of many periodicals. Vidal's status as the son of a famous All-American quarterback and Olympic athlete, and his relation to a grand Southern family that included a senator and prominent industrialists, put editors and reviewers in a difficult position. The butch concerns of Vidal's successful first novel, Willowall, which I recommend, <laughs> a war novel set in the Aleutians, which had been marketed and reviewed to his, in relation to his own military service, supported his separation of homosexuality and effeminacy, which made the position of editors and reviewers even less tenable. They were left ill-disposed, and several important newspapers and magazines refused to review the novel. Those reviews that did appear were bad, while sales did benefit from the controversy, so much that ads themselves reference the benefit to sales, this is an actual ad, some rave about it, brilliant, some are shocked, disgusting, but it became a bestseller. <laughs> the doll's literary career was forestalled. He published one novel in 1949, two in 50, one in 52, and one in 54. Reviews and sales were poor, and the New York Times refused to discuss them at all. Eventually, he had to resort to false names to get his novels reviewed. By contrast, Capote collaborated with public silences around homosexuality to his professional advantage. The first nationally distributed photograph of Capote was, was published on July 15, 1946, in Life Visits Yaddo, a photo essay by Lisa Larson, one of the very few female staff photographers at Life in the late 1940s and 50s. 
Yaddo itself is a prestigious artist colony. They've never accepted me. And Capote was not an obvious recruit. He had published his first short story in 1945 when he was 19. That same year, he published three more and won an O. Henry Prize. This was not enough notice to be accepted to Yaddo. He did, however, have a powerful friend in the novelist Carson McCullers who got him in. If Capote's presence at Yaddo was noteworthy, his prominence in Larson's photo essay is remarkable. Life's readers were led to assume a far greater status for Capote than he had. Yaddo's residence at the time included composer Aaron Copeland and writers McCullers and Catherine Ann Porter, but only Capote, Capote appears in two photos. The first picture in the essay, and the only full-page picture, is a portrait of Capote and Marguerite Young, best known today for her 1198-page novel, Miss McIntosh, My Darling which I also recommend, really. It's like 300 pages of like opium hallucinations. <laughs> By size alone, Capote is the essay's largest figure. Capote's prominence in the essay does not present Larson from constructing him as juvenile. Capote sits at the feet of Young and gazes up at her intently, mouth open as she reads. The caption reinstates his youth. Marguerite Young likes to sit in a bishop's chair stuffed with pillows. Her companion is 21-year-old Truman Capote, short story writer. Note that Young is the subject, while Capote is her companion. Note how the pointed reference to his age bolsters his own exhibition of youthfulness, the disheveled formal clothes and childish bangs that make him a dressed-up little boy. Capote here plays a traditional trick of upper-class schoolboys and the preppy men they become, whose too young clothes reinforce their status as the masculine stat standard, so secure they may dispense with signs of maturity. Capote's youth, by contrast, com permits his effeminate display. Consider Capote's bangs girlish as well as childish. Then consider his left foot, which reads as dainty, girlish, effeminate, within its sock and shoe. The white sock is the brightest object in the photo, which draws the eye to what initially reads as a woman's stocking, due to the height of Capote's cuff, hiked to be level with his seat, which leaves visible a length of white hose. The combination of white stocking and black penny loafer, common to schoolgirl uniforms, adds a further girlish touch, and at the time was a common gay sign. The loafer itself dangles. Capote's effeminacy is also conveyed through the feminine particulars of the angle and extension of his cigarette. Can you see that? Is this big enough? Okay. And through the small silver cigarette case obscuring his crotch. His cigarettes and their cases are often employed and read as displaced penises, then this penis is small, neat, and pretty. Though the case draws attention to Capote's crotch, it does not connote size and power, the usual performance of the phallic substitute. On June 2nd, 1947, Capote made his second national photographic appearance in another life photo essay. Here again, the caption positions Capote as both youthful and strange. Esoteric, New Orleans-born Truman Capote, 22, writes haunting short stories. Here again, Capote dominates the visual field. His nine and three quarters by nine and three quarters portrait is followed by four, four and a half, and four and a half, I don't know how to say that, four and a half by four and a half 
inches photographs of novelists Jean Stafford, Thomas Hagen, Calder Willingham, and Elizabeth Fenwick. These are followed by five more photos, all at two by two inches. The relative size imposes a rubric. Capote is king, Stafford, Hagen, Willingham, and Fenwick are dukes, and the remaining authors, one of whom is Gore Vidal, are peasants. All five large photos are taken by Jerry Cook, except the photo of Gene Stafford by Gene Spicer. Here you may see the relative size, and you can see how much more important he seems than the other authors as I show this. So that's the full page from life. Here's um, Stafford and Hagen, that's that size. Willingham and Fenwick. And here's the other, there's like two pages of this, so these very tiny writers, one of whom is Gore Vidal. So, both Cook and Spicer deploy the elements and ambiance of the film noir still, laden with high contrast menace and overdetermined symbols, as they compose the photos to reverberate with the photos author's books. Stafford, who wrote The Mountain Lion, is pictured in profile with a mountain lion, <laughs> also in profile. Hagen who wrote a satire aboard on life aboard his cargo ship, is photographed in front of a naval uniform. These photos relate to the authors too, but distinguish them from the novel's contents. Hagen does not wear the naval gear, and Stafford does not roar. <laughs> Capote, by contrast, sits at a Victorian double tete-a-tete in a room cluttered with bric-a-brac, similar to Yaddo's, but cheaper. What do his surroundings signify? Does their fussiness reflect Capote's too careful, too formal, and too mature dress and read as effeminate, as gay? There is a marked lack of clear illusion compared to the other photos. Why? The answer is found in the nexus between the captions esoteric and the gay contents of other voices, other rooms. In 1941, esoteric meant designed for and understood by the specially initiated alone. Esoteric thus indicates Capote's otherness to those who understand its code. Homosexuality is told through the fussy dandy. Cook cannot show us a truck driver who wants to take down your britches. If he wants to indicate the novel's homosexuality, all he can show is Capote himself. In the cultural lens, Capote is his own prop. Again, Gore Vidal offers a useful contrast. Consider how his headshot here is cropped severely from a 1947 portrait from Jerry Cook, which I talked to his wife and is almost certainly commissioned for the same photo shoot, but the paper is not in order, so I can't say that for certain. That positions Vidal in front of a giant ship that looms both above and behind. So that's the original photo. Vidal's quiff rhymes with the bow of the ship. The forward thrust of the ship parallels the forward thrust of the hair. His, he seems to size up the viewer, and only a close look reveals a half smile. The enormous ship expresses the power of this former maritime officer and references the War at Sea novel that made his name. And his expression, as well as his placement on a pier, a traditional setting for a homosexual assignation, allows the viewer to read the photo as a sexual invitation. As cropped by life, however, Vidal loses much of his potency. From such acts and decisions do the material basis of authorial personae accrue. If Capote is his own prop, 
If his own body signifies as the homosexual content of his novel, then Vidal, as pictured in life, is just a tiny face. Any reader could see that Capote was the essay star, though he was the only one of the 11 writers featured who had not yet published a book. In the article that accompanies the photo essay, he is barely acknowledged. Even Capote's publisher, Bennett Cerf at Random House, was surprised by his domination of the essay. About a week before Other Voices was published, my friend Richard Simon called me up and said, how the hell do you get a full-page picture of an author in Life magazine before his first book comes out? I said, do you think I'm going to tell you? Does Macy's tell Gimbals? Dick said, come on, how did you wrangle that? I said, Dick, I have no intention of telling you. He hung up in a huff, and I hung up too and cried, for God's sake, get me a copy of Life. That was the first I knew about the whole affair. Truman had managed to promote that full-page picture for himself, and how he did it, I don't know to this day. We see here the limits of the house's ability to market books and authors, as well as Capote's own potency at self-advertisement. But what is this potency? Can it be proven and measured? And did Capote control it? The range of possible agency slides from Larson and Cook controlling all aspects of Capote's representation. In other words, it was all the photographers. He had nothing to do with it. Two, Capote dictating it. Such agency is different for each shot and shoot and is compromised by editorial practice. Yet both peers and later critics credit Capote for his skills of publicity, publicity with their backhand, as Capote's power is usually softened as charm and sexualized as the ability to seduce the camera or a reporter or the mass public. In the author photo for Other Voices, Other Rooms, Capote, photographed at his direction by his friend Howard Halma, reclines on a fainting couch, his head turned toward and staring at the viewer from a close distance that implies intimacy. The intimate connotations of reclining on upholstery, does the model sleep or rise from sleep? And does the viewer observe the unguarded? Does the model entice the viewer to bed? are traditionally feminine. Capote, in his disruptive translation of this vocabulary of seduction, can best be compared to Manet's Olympia. T.J. Clark analyzes the inability of Manet's contemporary critics to discuss Olympia like so. Critics saw some kind of indeterminacy in the image, a body on a bed, evidently sexed and sexual, but whose appearance was hard to make out in any steady way and harder still to write about. Olympia disturbed because she refused the codes of representation for prostitution, thrusting an awareness of her personhood upon a society whose usual view of prostitutes was flat. Olympia's subjectivity not only prevents her from being read solely as an object of desire, but also forces an awareness of both the artificiality of her pose and the viewer's expectations of such a pose. Instead of regarding Olympia, the viewer regards his or her own desire. On a dust jacket, Capote cannot publicly present himself naked on a bed, or on a bed at all. 
Nor may Capote have a maid, the black presence at the heart of Manet's painting. But Capote's exotic persona does rhyme with the painting's interplay of race, sexuality, and gender, as in 1948, the southern gentleman's masculinity was always compromised by his aristocratic sensibility, his intimacy with black men and women, and the memory of southern defeat. Whether or not Capote and Halma were conscious of the specifics of their photographs' art historical antecedents is unknown and in most respects unimportant. Halma was Capote's roommate, not a professional photographer, and Gerald Clark, Capote's biographer, notes only that the men created the photo together. Capote, typically, had a variety of origin stories about the photo and often refused responsibility for either the pose or its choice as a publicity photo. What is known is that Capote insisted on this photo for the dust jacket of other voices and that he provoked a strong reaction by quoting the conventions of the Odalisque as he refutes them. Capote presents himself as a clothed nude. In a trick he practiced in Life magazine, he decontextualizes his clothes and forces their rereading. His white long sleeve shirt, buttoned Tattersall vest and bow tie, when combined with his informal and effeminate pose, are stripped of their usual conservative masculinity to shimmer with indeterminacy. Their propriety becomes appropriate for fantasy and play. The photo's staginess and strangeness are focused by the glasses that Capote holds in his hand, which reverberate with the conservative connotations of his bow tie. The librarian has taken off her glasses and revealed her beauty, and holds on to them so the remembered contrast may heighten the revelation of her face. Capote's direct gaze, which doubles the in-your-face masculine dare of publicly presenting the photo, is contradicted by the effeminacy of the glossy lips, the carefully styled hair and eyebrows, and the pose. Thus, Capote signals his availability for objectification. Feminist theory has long exposed the prison of being the bearer, not maker, of meaning. But for a gay man in 1948 to be viewed in the mass media as what Hilton Alls calls an American woman of style, something to be fucked somehow, was to bear an unusually attractive meaning. And then Capote was a man, though an effeminate one, and a white man, though a young and strange one, and so had access to privilege, as his gaze reminds us. Capote, like Olympia, maintains his own subjectivity as he offers himself up, attention which confuses his viewers and adds to his value and appeal. For Capote, like Olympia, is for sale. Capote's book wears his body as an enticement. Those who buy his novel may bring his picture home. This prostitution is traditional. Ever since authors have sold their works, and by association themselves, in the marketplace, their genders have been rendered incoherent by normative codes for both men and women. Male writers, especially those like Capote noted for their attention for detail, have had to assert their masculinity against the feminine aspects of their craft. Capote's young effeminate strangeness is a difference of degree, not kind, and his pose adheres to the law, if not the letter, of the publishing system he troubles. 
Sometimes Capote was read as gay, and sometimes he was not, and sometimes viewers understood that they were attracted to him, and sometimes they did not. His success at selling himself depends upon the broadly queer, those folks who, had, who may have identified with or desired Capote, but were not specifically gay. In the Clark biography, photographer Halma tells how he overheard two middle-aged women studying a photo enlargement in a bookstore window. I'm telling you he's just young, said one, and I'm telling you, replied the other, if he isn't young, he is dangerous. <laughs> this fantastic scene was repeated so often by Capote that Clark suspects him or Halma of lying. True or not, the story illustrates the elasticity of Capote's persona and Capote's pleasure at this multiplicity. His photo's various indeterminacies allows the possibility of desire to flicker on and off for these women, a flickering that enhances desire. But for what? An underage, untraditionally manly object of their heterosexual lust? Or do the women themselves want to repeat Capote's performance to be seductively bad? Or... Are their desires and identifications interlaced? Capote's constructed youth makes him more available for this spread of fantasy. Capote is understood as a boy, as he is understood as a woman, to force intelligibility upon what to these eyes is not a boy or even a teen, but a sexually provocative gay man. That said, Capote's jacket photo does literally enclose his boy hero, and readers' tendency to identify authors with their protagonists was abetted by Random House, who used the photo in print ads that read, This is Truman Capote, and sent huge blow-ups to bookstores. The media, which could barely discuss the novel's contents, was happy to report, and so hide in, but not discuss, the novel's visual sensation. For example, Time's negative review in January was followed by two more pieces on the photo itself. Extraordinary coverage for a dust jacket. These pieces are in the people section rather than the book review. Capote's persona has grown beyond his novel. On May 3rd, Time discuss, not only discusses but reproduces the languid pose of precocious author Truman Capote in a rare discussion of an author's photo per se. The photo's reproduction celebrates Capote literally, as it visually, as it denigrates him literally, as does the reason for the reproduction, the author's photo of humorist Max Schulman's economy size. Max Schulman is the guy who wrote Dobie Gillis. And uh, I think he was... He produced the TV show. <laughs> Burly, mature He-Man Shulman, photographed by Mina Turner, takes up Capote's pose to mock him. Shulman's awkwardness is meant to showcase the perversity of Capote's studied grace, as underscored by Time's caption, which describes Shulman as sitting on his neck, a term that correctly states that his neck, rather than his back, rests against the sofa, but then box the recumbent pose through its abrupt informality. Despite Shulman's claims to appropriate masculinity, he diligently avoids his penis. Whereas Capote lets his far arm trail over his side to rest naturally on his genitalia, Shulman awkwardly bends his arm so as to avoid his genitals. Where Capote drapes and extends the fingers of his left hand towards his crotch, Shulman further fends off his genitalia, genitals by balling his left hand, a defensive fist that furthers the gap between performative masculinity and the penis. 
Shulman's manhood is further foreshortened by his sofa. While Capote is visually integrated with his furniture, Capote's, uh, Shulman's couch ascends out of the frame, dwarfing him. Shulman may purposely fail at the photograph's tropes, but the satire, especially when placed next to Capote's mastery, rebounds and places his own masculinity in question. Shulman's careful study extends to his jacket copy, a false blurb that parodies the many statements of Capote's youth. Although these three books were written by Shulman at the age of eight, critics have pointed out that they show the insight and penetration of a man of nine. <laughs> the detail of this satire proves the depth of other writers' and publishers' consideration of Capote's success. And the joke's accessibility to the readership of a He-Man humorist, a readership not easily conflated with Capote's, tells of the photo's phenomenal spread through public consciousness. Now it's the trucker instead of the queer boy who needs a lift. And so Capote got his ride. He wins. His spectacular triumph marks him as an author worthy of visual representation. This champ won his title not only in spite of, but also because of, his differences from hegemonic masculinity. He thus brought the gender system into relief in question through both his persona and his writing without suffering the usual price, at least for a time. Ken Corbett cautions, queer theorists have had much to say about the oppression of regulatory force and the dulling consequences of normativity. But what of the strain of living outside the regular, the reliable, the customary? What does it cost to be always and already fabulous? Capote's celebrity would eventually eclipse his artistic reputation and encase him in the static persona of an alcoholic society gossip. By the time of his death in 1984, this sad end had obscured, but does not detract from the fabulous potency of his portraits. Thank you. Oh my goodness, that was a lot to read. Thank you for sitting through all of it. I think I'm supposed to ask for questions now. Are there any questions? I just noticed his gaze uh, reminds me of Judy Barber. He's looking at you. <laughs> he wants you to buy his book. So, um, I don't think I'm familiar enough with the gaze of Judy Garland, but I will look at that. Yes. Thanks for your reading, Jeff. Um, could you, I know you um, did have a lot of time, so you only focused on the Capote, but could you talk a little more about Stein in relation? That's a good, if very big, question. So, you know, one of the real questions about Capote is why was he able to be famous? Well, he's able to be famous and so visually gay because in some ways he adheres to the stereotype of what a gay man is. So people can just kind of show his photo and thus indicate his gayness but not discuss it. Whereas someone like Gore Vidal you'd have to discuss because he's so traditionally manly and that breaks the stereotype of gay men at the time. 
What happened with Gertrude Stein that I thought was interesting was there's this same kind of overcoating in the way that Capote is young and effeminate and strange and southern, which is part of the strangeness. Stein is Jewish and an expatriate and associated with the visual modernists, which is, you know, the wild people of their time, and economically independent and unmarried. And those things kind of overwhelm how she actually looks. So even after, this is the famous Time magazine cover of Gertrude Stein, this is not a traditional feminine representation, right? This is really a radical image from 1933. You, in the book, um, I reproduce all the Time magazine covers of all the women writers before 1976, and no matter who they are, lesbian or not, they're all like very traditionally represented. Willa Cather is like knitting in like a little chair, you know. <laughs> Why was she able to do this? Even though everyone on one level looks like this, I was able to document that for a good 20, 30 years, the public image of Gertrude Stein was as this femme fatale, this kind of opium queen, I call her, who would like lie on a couch, much like Capote's couch, and lure men to their doom in this kind of fantasy ache-less studio. So the other things that she was, French and Jewish and experimental, just kind of overwhelmed the um, the lesbianism and the female masculinity, or incorporated that sense from a mass market American perspective, that would just be something that women did in Paris, and not necessarily lesbian per se. Yes. And Jeff, isn't that also like that side, the, 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 that um, the perspective from the side like that? That's like a, that's the most. The Jewish intellectual. Yeah. And so it's very subversive in terms of. Absolutely. And they actually, time actually, in the book, I have the larger photo um, by George Blatt Lines that this is taken from. And time actually cuts it to make her more manly and to actually look larger. So. Now on sale in Provo, Utah. So I really think that was very helpful. I mean, I myself, you know, grew up in an utterly unintellectual family in a small town in Pennsylvania. Please don't go there. And I was really helped by these very basic mass media gay representations. And I suppose that was part of my interest in the book. You know, if you grow up in mainstream America, you really depend on kind of mainstream culture, which doesn't necessarily exist now in the way that it did when I was growing up. It definitely did exist. Yes? To what extent, Jeff, did you find that Gertrude Stein and Truman Capote had agency in how they were depicted? Well, I think, you know, in terms of the photos that I showed, Truman Capote definitely flirted with all the... Um, photographers and he tried to help them make a good picture I think he often worked with female and kind of non-normative male photographers who felt a kind of complicity with him but you know he was kind of a classic charming queen and his whole life had been geared to entertain in some way straight people and to get their attention so he was really gifted at publicity um 
How much agency did he have? Well, again, a lot of the reasons that he had power was because some of the things he did weren't really that subversive because, in a way, he agreed with the idea of gay men as effeminate and strange. He wasn't really arguing with that. Gertrude Stein, her agency is more complicated. She just basically waited until she had been radical for so long that it became institutionalized and no one was no one was no one was going to be shocked by anything she did because she'd been around for so long um, in terms of whether they themselves had any power uh, no I think they just happened to be situated well and they took advantage of it yes I wonder uh, if you could talk some about the photographs that feature uh, Stein this and how that also encodes dynamics. Basically, I don't think there are any that I'm remembering in your book of Capote with another man. They're always about him. That's true. I don't think Capote was very interested in other people. But um, no, I think that's. Isn't it how it works? Because I'm thinking of pretty good one of her at the desk and Alice in the background. And so her photos are, those are often about a relationship. Well, jo- that's really a helpful comment because Joe is discussing the frontispiece of the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, you know, which um, is a picture of Stein with Toklas that appeared in the first edition. That's where the water is. <laughs> on, on the first page. And... You know, one of my points is how how strange it is that in 1933, in the midst of the Depression, after the rise of National Socialism and the clamp down on personal liberties that happened after the 20s, there should be this huge mass market bestseller about a lesbian domestic relationship, right? You really could not be more in your face than the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. It would be like me calling me writing a biography of my boyfriend Greg and saying the autobiography of Greg Bills by Jeff Solomon, right? <laughs> like how lesbian can you get? And then to have kind of photos of you and your partner in the book, yes? And then to like just talk about your partner, you know, just in the normal way that straight people talked about their partner, you know, not necessarily describing your sex acts, but then heterosexual biographies in 1933 didn't describe sex acts either. So it's, I argue, because of her history and this whole history of kind of overcoding that allows her to do that. But yes, I think it's true. She very much always presents herself as part of a couple. So, yes? So now I'm thinking about the chronology of this, right? So 1933 is, you know, 15 years before Truman Capote starts getting famous. But it's also only five years after the um, Red Hall, Hall, mm-hmm. the Loneliness. And I think it's the same year as the first Ulysses trial. Mm-hmm. I think that was 1933. It's very close to that anyway. So it's really interesting, right, that a lot of kind of censorship and legal um, closure is going on at the same time that Stein is on the cover of Time magazine, right? So it's kind of interesting to think about that, that sort of, um, I don't know, um, contradictory maybe uh, chronology, yeah. No, that's interesting. Publishes Orlando in, in 28 as well. So that's, you know, five years ago is like, you know, thinking about Billy Elliot or something. I hadn't thought of that. That's really smart. I think that's true. I think that's true.
Yes. All right. Um, just, I'm taking note, but Jeff, were you aware of any uh, sense of self-awareness or uh, sense of capability being aware specifically of what he's doing, his actions, like how he developed who he was? It seems like he's doing you know, obvious behavior in effeminate you know, or effective ways. And I was, did you ever come across any comments that he was making? There's, there's a comment I came across when the, um, when the photo essay at Yaddo comes out, he's still at Yaddo, and he says to like his friends at dinner, I, I, I didn't really look that... You know, he, he, he obviously knows what he's doing. He's obviously kind of pushing it. So I think he has real self-consciousness about how he's portrayed. So yes, and th- there are comments about that. And in the introduction to the book, I talk about he's... Um, He's confronted by one of his friends about his publicity and whether he's worried about becoming just a public figure and not a serious writer. And he kind of discusses his feeling that that's just as important. He actually says, you know, no one would know, no one would read Gertrude Stein unless she was a celebrity. That's his example. That's kind of how I bring them together. So he very much knows Stein's relationship with a celebrity, I think, is a bit more complicated. She's not as thrilled to be famous, I would say, and has kind of a harder time with it than he does. Yes? I'm sorry, Mike, can you have me eclipse some of your thesis, but I'm wondering what you think, it, just from the little I've heard, of Roxanne Gay and her posturing, or anyone's posturing as a public intellectual, and how the critique of culture and the critique of identity comes through with those portrayals, versus the kind of celebrity or just sort of visibility that I think that's a really good comment, and actually we were speaking about that right before the talk. You know, arguably, there are no more literary celebrities in the way that there used to be. Uh, the last one I could think of is Norman Mailer, someone who was so famous at large in the culture that you would not have to read to know what they are, who they are. You still would know kind of what they look like, how they sound like. You'd see them on talk shows. They'd have cultural chef heft that would be separated from their um, from their writing. Roxanne Gay, Gay is very well known, but she's absolutely known as a writer, and I don't think anyone who doesn't read or isn't specifically interested in what she talks about knows who she is. I don't think that my archetypal woman in Provo I hope there's no one from Provo here, is necessarily going to he- hear about Roxanne Gay would be, my, would be my point. So I think it's just very different. I don't think we have mass market literary celebrities anymore. So, Well, it makes me sad too. I guess J.K. Rowling, maybe? Stephen King. I guess there are those people. So... Yes. Are there ever any hints of people either losing control or even losing favor from the gay community? Oh, yes. Hints. Hints. So... One of the things that's interesting about Capote is even though he's never been out of print, literally ever, ever, anything, ever, 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 you know, it's all there. The letters, the stories. Very little has been written about him, and especially kind of in, like, queer letters, almost nothing is written about him. And he's always, like, the lesser man, the lesser Williams, the lesser Baldwin. And I personally feel the reason that Capote has been so disrespectful 
respected critically is because he is so effeminate, because he is such a picture of kind of old school male homosexuality. So, you know, people writing around the time of gay liberation really want to separate themselves from the, from the idea of men as alcoholic, effeminate gossip queens, yes? So they kind of disavow him, and then later, Capote really isn't queer in any way whatsoever. You can't queer Truman Capote. What would that mean? Right? So someone who has a more queer perspective might be more interested in looking at a writer, say, like Marianne Moore, who can't be easily defined and really does seem to have a queer sexuality. But there's just nothing queer about Truman Capote. He's like a Kinsey Six. There's just, there's, there's, that's it. That's it. There's no complication there. So, and I would say the same is true for Stein. Oh, I'm enjoying this. Please ask one more question. Then I'll let you go. So, yes? Can you uh, describe the relationship between the law and It's bad. <laughs> bad. It's bad relationship. Um, you know, Capote and Vidal are kind of... I think it's unfortunate. You know, they kind of play enemies for a good 20, 30 years. They're always opposed. They always hate each other. They always say kind of nasty things about each other. I just can't understand why these two gay men, you know, writing in the 50s and 60s would find cause to attack each other rather than to to attack the people who were actually oppressing them. But whatever. So Vidal, you know, is really invested in not being a gay writer. He's really invested in not being gay. He has all this gay sex, but he always claims that it's just something he happens to be doing that day. And at any moment, he might sleep with a woman. And if he should become president, in which he thought he was going to be, he would definitely get married and have all these children. You know, this is a man who, like, had this long-term partner for 30 years and claimed he never had sex with him, which we know is untrue. At the same time, Gore Vidal probably had a better life in some ways. So, Capote was a much more straightforwardly gay man. You know, Vidal is more, I think, what we would call queer, in that he really did not accept a gay identity, though all the sex he had was with other men. And I think, you know, and again, as, as I showed, Vidal is very invested in being a normative, hegemonic, manly, powerful man, classically good-looking, famous family, rich, southern, um, they just were, they were truly opposed, so it's not a surprise that they did not get along. I just think it's unfortunate that they fought so much. Yes? Could you suss out more of that gender phenomenon? I'm thinking of lipstick lesbians and this iconic intellectual gay man who was Stein. How would gender bending intersect with the Well, could you say that again? I like what you said about the code and the fact that he can be sponsored and that it's something I think that working with his relationship is examined, and that's just the whole, mm-hmm. the whole work. Um, and this um, this idea, we have this buff, heterosexual idea of gay masculinity that we have, you know, favor for the pop culture, and how a lipstick lesbian may hit you, talk about but Stein is really a difficult construction, I think, in comparison to that. And I'm just wondering if you could suss out more your argument with Capote and 
gay male sexuality and lesbianism in terms of gender? Well, Stein's presentation is complicated. I was surprised as I researched Stein to find out that after she becomes famous, she actually becomes a bit more conventionally feminine. And in part, that's because she's really good friends with, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Lanvin, L-A-N-V-I-N, the fashion designer. And so she wears, excuse me? I know you know. Okay. So she ends up wearing a lot of his clothes. And, you know, the Stein of, like, the late 30s has a more conventionally feminine representation than the Stein of here. And it's also a question whether Stein is actually trying to appear manly qua manly or whether she just doesn't want to wear a corset and she doesn't want to mess with her hair and whether she's just very large and doesn't want to hide that largeness in any way. Stein is always kind of very proud and happy with her body. And also, you know, she refuses to kind of like change her clothes. Like she'll buy like five of the same dresses when she's young and just wear them all week. So she, so... Well, that, I'm trying to avoid your question by answering that. It de- she definitely rejects conventional femininity. There's no question. You know, I personally don't think that Stein saw herself as manly, but she did see herself as masculine, and she did kind of position herself in certain ways as like the husband in her domestic relationship, but I don't think she identified as a man. But... I can't really back that up. That's just kind of my feeling, having studied her for so long. So she doesn't ever really write about it or talk about it, and she talks about everything. Well, I mean, I guess you could say that that in the way that Capote was acceptable in his time as a gay man because he didn't kind of break gender conventions, lipstick lesbians don't break gender conventions kind of in a similar way. I mean, one of the things I talk about is the difference between gay men and gay women in the 20th century. Gay men are always hyper-visible, yes? Because they're giving up something. They're giving up masculinity, which is the best thing you can have, versus kind of lesbians, to an extent, as long as they don't get quote-unquote manly, are invisible, or to the extent that they are manly, get kind of points, in the same way that a tomboy is more acceptable than a tom girl in junior high. So I think they're just very difficult, very different situations, and you actually can't compare them, because gay men and gay women have had such different experiences historically. Well, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you. What do I do now? Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.